Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. As expected, Boris Johnson won the Conservative Party leadership contest this morning and will become the next UK Prime Minister. He said his goals were to deliver Brexit, unite the country, and defeat Jeremy Corbyn. With me is Adam Roberts. He's Midwest correspondent for The Economist. Prior to this, he was the South Asia correspondent for The Economist, and we will get to his expertise in South Asia in a little bit. But first, Boris Johnson, you know, I don't think probably most people in the United States really know that much about him. Hmm. Former mayor of London, he was, uh, you know, the foreign minister here for a bit, but uh, he's still, his his personality probably is a little bit uh, of a mystery to people here. Well, I think you're going to find out a bit more about Boris Johnson in the coming months and, and perhaps years. He's quite a charismatic, lively figure. He's larger than life. He's blonde, uh, bushy-haired. He's he's a sort of bumbling, outspoken sort of figure who's who's very bombastic, I think, and quite right-wing. He's redefined his, his political leanings quite a lot in the last two or three years. You mentioned he was the mayor of London. Back then, he was a very popular man across the whole of London. He was uh, international-minded, pro-free trade, in favour of immigration, and rather pro-EU. In the last few years, he's reversed his position on all, almost all of those. So how do we rack him up? Up. Is, is he a populist on, like uh, Donald Trump is, or is he a chameleon uh, character? Well, I think the answer could be that he's both. He, he's something of a chameleon because he has shifted his positions, but he's shifting them very much towards the the far-right, anti-European Brexit wing of British politics. So if listeners have heard of Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, the, the goal of Boris Johnson is to try to eat his lunch, to try to replicate a lot of what the Brexit folk have been doing, to try to win the votes of those in, in Britain who are very hostile to the European Union. Now, the thing that uh, Boris Johnson is doing here is he's saying uh, in, in the end of October, hard Brexit if we don't have a deal. Uh, what kind of strategy is that? Is that a good strategy? Well, he would claim that this is a negotiation strategy. So he, he threatens to walk out of the EU with no deal by Halloween. And if the EU doesn't agree, then it'll hurt both sides. So it's, it's the equivalent of holding a gun to his own head and saying, if you don't negotiate with me, I'll, I'll pull the trigger. Now, in his theory, that will force the EU to come up with a better sort of exit deal for Britain. In reality, it's not a very good strategy because Europe has no interest in renegotiating the deal that Theresa May uh, struck a little while back. And the EU negotiator came out and said that today. Yes, and I think they've been very consistent in saying that. And so Boris Johnson is going to struggle for a month or so to pretend that he's getting a better deal. And then we'll have to decide whether or not to keep his word or whether to, in fact, pull Britain out of the EU with no sort of deal. And right now, the the sticking point has been Northern Ireland and the backstop, and he has said he can fix this. He uh, How? Well, much of what Boris Johnson seems to say is that by wishful thinking and by having a positive attitude and some magical technology, he'll be able to fix this. <laughs> Nobody has any clear idea of what he, what he really thinks can be done. He claims that some sort of clever technology might allow goods to flow between Northern Ireland and Ireland without there being a hard border, but he's not able to point to that technology. The EU says this is nonsense. It can't happen. Nobody believes it. So the idea that by the end of October we'll be able to sort out the backstop seems like fiction. Now, with a looming uh, hard Brexit, if you can't sort out the backstop, you get the hard Brexit. Uh, Scotland looks a little antsy. And uh, Nicola Sturgeon is a uh, highly skilled politician, and there is talk of a second referendum in Scotland. Yeah, so this is the risk. That Just to say there is a third possible outcome, which is that we could perhaps kick this into touch again and have another delay. It may be the EU would agree to have another 
another extension of this and just possibly Boris Johnson finds a way to accept to that it To go back be on his word? Well, it wouldn't be the first time a politician goes back on his word, so it's just possible. But on Scotland, I think you're right. Uh, those who want independence see this as a wonderful opportunity now to say that no one in Scotland or very few people voted for Brexit. They certainly despise Boris Johnson, who's seen as an upper class Englishman who has no sympathy for the Scots or, or indeed the Celts or anyone across Britain outside of the metropolitan areas. And so they would certainly see this as a chance to break away from the rest of the United Kingdom. I noticed that Boris Johnson has carefully planned meetings with many people in Scotland, the Conservative Party there, which voted for uh, his opponent in the contest this morning. Yeah. They're uh, they're good. They're you know they're leery of him, but yeah. they're going to have to talk with him, and everybody's going to talk, and they're going to have a nice time. Well, they can't completely shun the, the new prime minister, but I don't think the Scottish Conservatives want Boris Johnson to be up there too often because it puts off their voters. The voters will swing towards the Scottish Nationalists, possibly towards Labour. But there is a great appetite in Scotland for staying inside the European Union and a great resentment of of rule from London. And the presence of a bumbling English fool, as Boris Johnson has seen north of the border, will only encourage that division to grow. So do you believe Boris Johnson is the kind of guy who has this force of personality, this idea of himself, that he would just uh, hard Brexit out and drive the UK into being not the UK anymore? I mean, people, that's what the, that's what the editorial in the New York Times was the other day. Yeah. Boris Johnson is the end of the UK. He could well be the prime minister who oversees the dissolution of, you know, the splitting up of, of the UK. Absolutely. I think his, his prior worry is the splitting up and destruction of the Conservative Party. He thinks that he will have one wing of the Conservative Party, the Brexit hardliners, who will break away from him if he doesn't deliver exit from the European Union. But there's another wing of the Conservative Party, the more moderate ones that maybe Jeremy Hunt, but also the current Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, and a whole bunch of others who really want another referendum and don't want to leave the EU on these terms at all, because they can see the economic damage that is guaranteed to happen with a hard Brexit. And he's going to upset one or other of those wings in the next few months. The only question is which one. And there's no chance that he'll call an election because he's too afraid of these outcomes. The, the election outcomes are unpredictable. Well, I hesitate to say no chance. British politics has gone completely bananas in the last few years. And so there is some speculation that Boris Johnson, who has only been elected by a few thousand members of the Conservative Party, may believe that he could by force of his personality, win a more successful electoral mandate by going to the country. And remember, the Conservatives in Britain don't have much of a working majority. They've only got two MPs more than they need to pass any legislation. And given the division in their party, they could easily lose that majority. So he may believe that going for an election could make sense. Who knows whether it would be two months from now or six months from now, but we could well have an election, yes. Now, it's interesting that there was also new leadership uh, in, in the Liberal Democratic Party. Joe Swinson came out and said that um, she is the Remain kind of candidate. Yeah. And she is, uh, you know, if there were a new election and you wanted to vote Remain, you would vote Lib Dem. Well, one of the puzzles of the last few years is why the 48% of British voters who voted to stay within the EU why they haven't been more forceful, why they haven't rallied around a political party or a leader to say, we want to fight harder for remaining in the EU despite the referendum. And one of the answers to that is there hasn't been an effective opposition in Britain. The Labour Party has been led by a very incompetently 
leader, the Liberal Democrats have seemed rather irrelevant. Now, there is a resurgence in support for the Lib Dems this year. And Jo Swinson is a telegenic young woman. She's, I think, 39. She could well become a figure who will, who will get these people to rally around the Lib Dems as the Remain party and therefore potentially tap into that 48% for the voters who want to stay. It's uh, it's an interesting scenario for them because um, if the conservatives split and split their vote, yeah. uh, if the labor looks weak, they could get a lot more votes and maybe the most votes. They could. I mean, we are potentially overseeing a period of immense upheaval in British politics. It may be that this old dominance of the Conservatives and the Labour Party that has existed for a century or so is coming to an end. And maybe what we'll see is the rise of a party on the right that is defined by anti-European, anti-immigration, maybe sort of Trumpian politics versus a party on the centre-left, which is more internationally minded and more like a version of the Democratic Party here. So I think we may be saying, seeing a recalibrating of politics in Britain. It would seem easier for Boris Johnson to just say, to, to push the deadline. That, that, that All that looks too scary to me. If, if I were a Boris politician, Johnson. I would put this into touch as far as I can. He has promised again and again, this will be done by October the 31st. So let's see if he can, if he can do that. I'm talking with Adam Roberts. He's Midwest correspondent for The Economist, and we're talking about British politics and Boris Johnson, who won the Conservative Party leadership and becomes the next UK prime minister. And I did want to switch over to your other expertise in South Asia, where you were previously South Asia correspondent for The Economist. Uh, We had an interesting experience uh, yesterday with President Trump and Imran Khan, the prime minister of, uh, of Pakistan. And they had this press conference, and I, I thought we'd just play the Kashmir clip that got a lot of attention here. And this is uh, Imran Khan and President Trump talking about the one of the most intractable conflicts on earth. I will be asking President Trump. Uh, he's, uh, it's the most powerful country in the world, the United States. It can play the most important role in bringing peace in the subcontinent. You know, there are over a, well, over a billion uh, and a quarter people in the subcontinent. They are held hostage to the issue of Kashmir. And I feel that only uh, uh, the, 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 the most powerful state uh, headed by President Trump can, can bring the two countries together. I, from my point, I can tell you, we have tried our best. We've made all overtures to India to, uh, to uh, start dialogue resolve our differences uh, through, through dialogue. But unfortunately, we haven't made headways as yet. But I'm hoping that President Trump would uh, push this process. So I was, with, uh, I was with Prime Minister Modi two weeks ago, and we talked about this subject. And he actually said, would you like to be a mediator or arbitrator? I said, where? He said, Kashmir. Because this has been going on for many, many years. I was surprised at how long it's been going on along. 70 years. I think they'd like to see it resolved, and I think you'd like to see it resolved. And if I could help, I would love to be a mediator. It shouldn't be, I mean, it's impossible to believe. Two incredible countries that are very, very smart, with very smart leadership, can't solve a problem like that. But if you would want me to mediate or arbitrate, I would be willing to do that. Um, President, I can tell you that right now, uh, it would, you will have the prayers of over a billion people if you 
can mediate and resolve this issue. It should be resolved. So, but he asked me the same thing. So I think there's something. So maybe we'll speak to him, or I'll speak to him, and we'll see if we can do so. Mr. President, even because I've heard so much about Kashmir. Yes. Such a beautiful name. It's supposed to be such a beautiful part of the world. But right now, there's just bombs all over the place. They say everywhere you go, you have bombs. And it's a it's a terrible situation been going on for many years. If I can do anything to help that, let me know. That's President Trump and Imran Khan of Pakistan uh, yesterday at their press conference where President Trump offers to mediate on uh, Kashmir. Uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the the prime minister of Pakistan there throws out this, oh, please, Mr. President, you're the, only the most powerful man on earth could step yeah. into this thing. And wham, he gets a hit. I think Imran Khan played Donald Trump like a violin. It, it, you could hear the grin on Imran Khan's face, the, the joy of his advisors. <laughs> that if they'd rehearsed this a week ago, they couldn't have imagined such a fantastic outcome. Donald Trump comes out of this as a sucker. He, he was instantly disproved by the Indian government for making up a, a bald-faced lie that just looks juvenile and foolish. The Pakistanis are delighted because they've got the Americans to talk about arbitrating in a dispute that the Indians say is domestic or a bilateral issue and has no role for outsiders. And so Trump has stumbled rather idiotically into something he just doesn't understand. And I mean, his um, abilities in South Asia are... Uh, you know, Weak. Yeah, I mean, just the other day with refugees, he was he couldn't figure out um, Burma and Bangladesh yeah. and what was going on with the Rohingya. Uh, now he can't figure out what's going on in Kashmir, and it was evident throughout the press conference that he, you know. Uh, you know, I could go in and win yeah. the war in Afghanistan, and I could wipe it off the face of the earth. You yeah. know, I could. Uh, you know, he was very. He's 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 yeah. not strong there. No disrespect <laughs> to sixth graders, but it's the sort of conversation that a school kid might might have about international politics. I, I genuinely think that any other politician elected in in America would have had a better understanding of of the state of politics between these two countries and what not to say. It's interesting because uh, the reason why President Trump is meeting with Imran Khan is is Afghanistan. And uh, the United States wants something from Pakistan yeah. in Afghanistan. And I, I don't know if what we saw yesterday was a process to getting there or what. It was certainly something. I guess it was something. I mean, there's an age-old problem that the United States has with Pakistan in Afghanistan, that the Pakistanis on the one hand are an essential ally for trying to bring some sort of stability into Afghanistan and to try to sort of limit the effect of the Taliban and of rebel forces in that territory. On the other hand, Pakistan is the great cause of instability in Afghanistan. Its army is the source of much terrorism in South Asia, and it is the great stirrer up of trouble and religious extremism. And so this tortuous relationship that America has with Pakistan, in fact, all countries have with Pakistan, will just continue for years on end. Imran Khan is a very silkily spoken, very skillful politician. I've interviewed him many times, and I admire him for his political skills, and we saw what he could achieve yesterday in Washington. But there's an age-old problem with Pakistan that is not going away. And he is tight with the military. He is not going out of bounds on the military like the previous prime minister. Exactly. So he, he's been brought to power because he's the military's front man, essentially. Now, the, Pakistan does seem interested in getting a, a, getting money, though. And uh, <laughs> Surprise. The, uh, um, the United States has been signing off on IMF loans to Pakistan yeah. and seems to be leaving some crumbs on the ground to get where it wants to go. 
on on Afghanistan. Well, we've seen an interesting policy of, of Donald Trump when it comes to Pakistan. Early on, he was rather hostile in, in talking about how he would be ready to pull away and withdraw aid from Pakistan, withdraw military support, but also withdraw this sort of financial help. More recently, as you say, there's been greater help. This is a, a, a tool that the Americans can use in Pakistan to have influence because the great rival in that region is China. And if America steps back, the Chinese step forward. And we see a lot of investment from China into Pakistan. And if you if you want to have some influence over what's happening in the ground, you have to be ready to spend. You know, and if I think of the negotiator on Afghanistan, Zalmay Khalilzad, he was pretty willing to deal with Pakistan before. The Bush administration was willing to uh, support Pakistan in, in strong ways after 9-11. Yes. So there's been an on-off, hot and cold relationship with Pakistan. Remember, you know, Osama bin Laden was given sanctuary there, whether that was official policy or not. Remember, a lot of, of the Taliban and rebels found sanctuary in, in Pakistani territory. A, a great deal of terrorism in the region and beyond can be sourced back to extremists who are based in, in Pakistan. And so there's anxiety about how to handle that state, but it has nuclear weapons, it has a very large population, it has the ability to shape outcomes in Afghanistan and elsewhere. So you can't cut ties and you can't be entirely hostile to Pakistan. It's a very difficult country to handle. It takes some nuance and some skill, which I'm afraid the current president doesn't have. Adam Roberts is Midwest correspondent for The Economist. Prior to this, he was the South Asia correspondent for The Economist, and he wrote a book about India, Superfast Primetime, Ultimate Nation, The Relentless Invention of Modern India. Thanks a lot for joining us again, Adam Roberts. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll dip into the Worldview archives and talk about the origins of war. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 2019 marks 25 years that Worldviews brought you human stories from at home and abroad. Before Worldview goes off the air this fall, we wanted to bring you some selections from our deep archive. Donald Kagan joined us in 1995 to talk about the origins of war. The now-retired Yale professor was known for his histories of the Peloponnesian War, the wars between Rome and Carthage, the last century's world wars, and even the Cuban Missile Crisis. I began by asking him if most wars are avoidable. My sense is that most of the wars that I have studied are are avoidable, or could have been avoided, yes. And... (laughs) If most wars are avoidable, uh, we certainly make a, a lot of miscalculations. Uh, it, it, is there something about human nature that uh, causes us not to not to have the far-sighted vision and that we need in most instances to to be able to judge accurately wh- what will happen once we get into wars? I think with the character of human beings is what's at issue. And it's not only a question of miscalculation. Some of the time, that's what's at issue. 
But uh, as you probably remember, I am much impressed by the analysis made by the ancient Greek historian Thucydides about why people fight. Uh, and the first step of that discussion is they fight about power. That's hard for us to swallow. We tend to think about power as, as a nasty thing, which is a misconception. Power is a neutral idea. Everybody needs power to accomplish anything or to be able to resist somebody imposing something on you that you don't want. The question about power, is it used for a good purpose or for a bad purpose? Everybody wants power, and at sometimes they want as much as they can get, but they at least want as much as, to, as they need to make themselves feel comfortable. Any system of multiple states, therefore, will have some competition for power because it's never stable. It's always true that some states are growing more powerful and some states are growing less powerful, and they... They sort of react to that. That's what sets the scene for trouble that may lead to war. Back to Thucydides' second level, which is where his depth, I think, is very uh, revealing. He focuses on three reasons why people fight. One is honor, a second is fear, and a third is interest. And honor needs a little explanation because in our world that seems a little bit strange. But if you translate that into words like prestige, respect, due regard, consideration, then it becomes understandable. States don't want to be feeling as though they're pushed around. And some states feel the need for people to recognize them as superior uh, in ways that they think they deserve. And so arguments about such questions frequently uh, start trouble. And the other thing about human beings is we have this unique capacity among animals, as far as I can tell, in that we can imagine what might happen in the future. And so we have a tendency to project fear, to create fears about things that aren't happening now but might happen later on. We need that capacity to survive, but it also creates the kinds of fears that sometimes engender wars. Interest doesn't need much explanation. That's what we always take for granted. So these things are always present among human beings. And so it's not strange that the overwhelming percentage of the time for which we have any knowledge of human history, they, human beings have been at war far, far more than they've been at peace. So uh, if we can apply this to something today, Jimmy Carter has been trotting around the globe, and he basically deals in honor. He gives the North Koreans honor. He gives the Bosnian Serbs honor. He gives them recognition. He gives them what they feel is their due course, and this is successful in right. avoiding war to a large extent. Maybe. Uh, it may or it may not. But uh, we sh it's, that's a, I like that question because it reminds us there are other things we all care about besides war and peace. Uh, not everybody would think it was good to avoid war in, and, as a price of that, institute a terribly unjust peace. My sense is that uh, Carter in uh, Yugoslavia is basically making it easier for the aggressors to be able to swallow up their victims without any further fuss. I'm, I don't admire that very much. Uh, so, so and, and, of course, the, you could argue that the Germans, prior to the First World War, uh, were seeking a degree of honor that they thought was appropriate, but the consequence would have been to put the rest of Europe at their mercy. I think it was natural that people should have tried to resist. So, uh, as you can see, there are competing interests that are involved in these matters. Throughout the book, there are, are instances where 
Um, in Athens, we've got uh, a great <coughs> naval power, but not a great army. We've got England before the First World War as a great naval party with, uh, without a, a great armed forces again. And do countries today uh, know and recognize the, the importance of balance within all their naval armed forces and now nuclear forces? It varies. <clears throat> and the main problem is every state tends to have a tradition of the kinds of armed forces that it has been strong in and, and those that it has been not so strong in and those that it's willing to pay for and those that it's not willing to pay for. And these don't always square with what the strategic situation requires. So, for instance, the British before the First World War had a long history of counting on the Navy to achieve their goals, perfectly understandable for an island state. But they tended to neglect some of the lessons of their history, which is that when there's a great power on the continent who threatens to dominate the whole continent, there's no way to prevent that without being willing to put a military force on the continent. They ought to have learned that lesson from what they had to do against Napoleon. But it was an unpleasant lesson because it meant they had to do things that were uncomfortable, expensive. They didn't want to do them. And so they dreamed up theories that explained why they didn't need to do that. I'm afraid we're all prone to those kinds of things. And these theories persisted even beyond the First World War uh, to the Second World War, and we had Neville Chamberlain, and uh, the, the big lesson for this century, I imagine, uh, was appeasement. Right. And that actually came about uh, as a consequence of the First World War when, having put a large army on the continent too late to deter the war, but just barely in time to avoid losing it, the casualties were so horrendous and fearful that they scarred the minds of that entire generation. And the, the slogan for such people always was, never again. We'll never do that again. We'll never do what? We'll never put a force on the continent again. As though that were really an option that was in their hands. It was again, understandably, a turning away from what the real world might impose upon you. In both cases, it turned out the British had to go to the draft. In both cases, they ended up having to put large armies onto the continent. But in both cases, too late to do what you'd like your army to do, make a war unnecessary. Now, there, if we, and during the Cold War, we've had kind of a, a bipolar situation where we have two great powers, and it's meant a long period of peace and stability. And now, after the Cold War... We're into a, a different scenario here. We're seeing lots more smaller wars. Our armed forces are not geared for this. We've got this huge NATO force on the continent of Europe that is unable or or the leadership has not been there to use it effectively. Uh, how do we readjust here after the Cold War so that we have the right kind of balance to avoid wars now? One of the reasons I wrote the book, apart from just the fun of it, because I find telling the story of how interesting things happened in the past, led by interesting people, just as much fun as I know. But apart from that, one of the reasons was to try to persuade people of our time that they've been looking at this question the wrong way. The wrong way is to assume that peace is the natural order of things. And if you simply avoid doing anything wicked or stupid, there's no reason for there to be war. But as you've heard from me already, that's not the way I think things work. I think 
you have to, if you have an interest in peace, you have to work hard at it. You have to use your intelligence, you have to use your time, you have to use your money, and you have to be prepared on occasion even to take casualties in order to see that things are as good as they can be. And I'm afraid this has not been communicated effectively at all. If it happens to be right, it would be too bad if people didn't learn that lesson. A lot of people think that the media plays a great role in this. Everyone can see the wars now in Vietnam. The Russians can see the Chechen war. So everyone sees the horror of war more right. clearly. Right. And there's, is, there's a huge reluctance and public uproar and coverage of the public uproar whenever anyone right. takes casualties. Right. It, this is new into the equation, I imagine. Yes. And... How 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 do you figure that in? Is this part of our reluctance in the future to uh, to go at war? And, yes. and it makes it very much harder to do what I think we need to do. Uh, of course, uh, it's silly in the sense that if I'm right that you need to take active measures to preserve peace, then the notion that anything that you do in the way of preparing for war is a wicked thing. The Roman famous Roman slogan that if you want peace, prepare for war, I think is accurate, especially when it's in the hands of people such as the ones I have in mind, whose interests are very much in accord with preserving the peace. That's the, the, my study of history tells me you have peace most successfully and most long, for, most, for the most long period of time, when those states who have an interest in peace also have the power to make their will count and the will to use that power. For instance, the period we just came through. Most people, or at least very many people, and learned people and wise people, were very fearful that there would be a war between the Soviet Union and the United States before the Cold War was over. It was not a crazy idea that that was going to happen. Sure. And if you ask yourself, why didn't it happen, I think a, a rational and objective observer would have to say, to some considerable degree, it was the willingness of the Western powers to make the sacrifices that were necessary uh, to preserve the peace. Uh, there's a wonderful lesson, and if you lay it back to back with the lesson of how not doing that led to the Second World War, you would think people might be persuaded there was something in it. It seems very easy to forget, though. I'm speaking with Donald Kagan about his book on the origins of war. Does every leader have to earn his stripes? We saw in your book, Khrushchev tests Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis. The United States was infinitely more powerful than the Soviet Union at that point, and they both knew it. This was not a case where there was a miscalculation about the power that was real. But uh, Khrushchev made the estimate of Kennedy that he lacked the will to use that power and that he could be bullied and that Khrushchev could change the balance of power to the Soviet Union's advantage, and Kennedy would let it happen. And that's how the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And, and Kennedy and Khrushchev learned this the first time they met. Khrushchev bullied Kennedy uh, right. right off the, uh, the stage yes. and, and felt that he could do that. If he could do that personally, he could do that on a right. grander scale. Well, in fact, there was a whole run of things that pointed in the same direction. The Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, Kennedy permitted that to go forward, authorized it, and then he pared it down so that it would have a hard time winning, and then he abandoned the forces that were there and allowed them to be killed or captured, an action that absolutely stunned Khrushchev, we know, just inconceivable. So there was that. There was uh, this incredible meeting at Vienna that you talked about. It. Kennedy came out of the meeting and said he beat the hell out of me. 
that was not a very good uh, sign. And uh, then the, the whole business of the Berlin Wall, where the uh, Germans were allowed unilaterally to change the provisions of the treaties that were governing the uh, governance of Germany and Berlin at the time. And Kennedy did not do anything to stop it. When he began sending weapons to Cuba visibly and in great amounts in the spring of 1962, Kennedy didn't even protest. So Khrushchev understandably came to the view that this guy might be had. And this nearly brought us to the greatest catastrophe that, that yeah. we could have possibly imagined. Some people say after the event that there never was a real danger of a nuclear confrontation because Khrushchev knew how badly he was outgunned and would withdraw. I think there's a lot in that, but it it misses the point that we're dealing with human beings who are fallible and who at the critical moment may make an an insane judgment. Uh, so I'm, I'm not so comfortable about that. I do think it was there was a considerable element of risk for that reason. Is that is that pressure so great, much greater now when you use force that almost no leader can withstand the pressure no, for long? No, no. I think leaders can withstand that. There, you know, think about it for a moment. There was this so-called Vietnam syndrome, which was supposed to prevent any American president ever from using force anywhere, and it really worked. I think there for a while, but you know, when Reagan took that little step uh, in Grenada. The first reaction of somebody like Senator Kennedy, for instance, was to start denouncing it wildly, being completely out of touch with the rest of the country. And then, as Reagan did one or two or three other small actions, each time the country seemed to say, yeah, well, that's okay. So what I'm saying is the leader has to lead. He he can't uh, be deterred by the fact that he starts out with an unpopular position. But it's harder. That's that's a, a point I would concede. It's harder for a leader to take a uh, military action now than it was in the past. That was Donald Kagan, the author of On the Origins of War and the Preservation of Peace. His course at Yale was, for a time, one of the most popular ever offered there. I spoke to him in 1995. In 2000, Kagan and his son Frederick co-authored the book While America Sleeps, which advocated for the U.S. to expand military spending. His immediate family were prominent early supporters for the U.S. invasion of Iraq after 9-11. Between now and the fall, when Worldview goes off the air, we'll bring you more stories like this from our 25-year run. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the Ukrainian parliamentary elections. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
Ukrainian parliamentary elections took place on Sunday, and the results suggest that President Zelensky's Servant of the People Party is going to have an outright majority in the Ukrainian parliament, and this would make a unprecedented presidency for the uh, former TV comedian. With me is David Marples. He is a university professor and chair of history in the classics department at the University of Alberta, and most recently the author of Ukraine in Conflict and Analytical Chronicle. Thanks a lot for joining me, David Marples. My pleasure. Uh, I wonder um, if you can talk a little about what this means for a Ukrainian president to have an outright majority in parliament. This is the kind of thing that has not happened before. No, it's not happened so directly, although I think we should keep in mind that he doesn't have a constitutional majority. Um, In other words, he doesn't have two-thirds of parliamentary seats, which would allow him to virtually pass any motion. But still, it's a powerful mandate, and it's not happened before because usually the vote is split between the president's party and opposition parties, and the coalitions often change during the course of the parliamentary life. Um, This time you've got a a brand new party, uh, just invented this spring, and no one really knows uh, much about the identity of any of the MPs in it. Um, So really it's all, I think, based on the personality of the president, uh, which in turn is based on his his TV personality, which is what endears so many voters to him. Um, You know, in, in other Republics around Ukraine, for example, Belarus, when you've got a situation of so much presidential authority, it became an authoritarian state very quickly. I don't see this happening in Ukraine, um, at least not very, it's not very likely because, uh, again, there are so many other forces to contend with, so many different sources of power in Ukraine. You know, one of the things I, one of the headlines I saw is that um, President Zelensky is promising that oligarchs should be ready for new rules of the game. Can he write new rules of the game now for for the most powerful people in Ukraine? Uh, yes, he could. Uh, it would it would uh, involve a lot of lustration activity. He would need to reform the the court system, remove many of the judges, uh, get rid of the prosecutor general, Yuri Lutsenko, which I think he's already vowed to do. Um, It could be done, but it would cause an enormous upheaval. And the opposition bloc, among other groups, are heavily sponsored by oligarchs. Um, They are the second most powerful group in the parliament, so there would be significant opposition to doing that. In addition, Zelensky himself has to deal with the oligarch uh, Kolomoisky, Igor Kolomoisky, who was the former leader of the Dnipro, uh, formerly Dnipropetrovsk region, and had a, had a falling out with the former president Poroshenko and then um, actually spent most of his time out of the country. He's now back. Uh, he's probably the most notorious of all the oligarchs. Um, his ownership of Privat Bank is in a court case right now in London. Um, so what will he do with him? You know, And I think does he completely forgo the support of Kolomoisky? I mean, is it too dangerous a thing to hang on to? That, I think, will be one of his most important decisions to make in the coming year. Um, and, of course, oligarchs are so deeply rooted in so many aspects of Ukrainian life. Um, it will be hard to do in five years. I mean, it, it potentially he's got the power to do it. But he may simply lapse and you know, decide some oligarchs are better than others, which is more or less what Vladimir Putin did in, in Russia. 
Uh, you know, one of his other promises is to end the war. Um, how, how do you do that? I think one of the things that probably was popular about him was that he, um, you know, President Poroshenko seemed to be profiting off the war, and it seemed like he was almost uh, invested in, in it. Um, is, does Zelensky come in here with some kind of idea about how to end the war? Well, Poroshenko took a very hard line. He really took on a, a view that Russia was actually the enemy, even though there was no public declaration of war, and that any communication, um, transport between Ukraine and Russia would be cut off. And he even went further than that and, and cut off trade with the occupied regions of Ukraine, which probably, well, almost certainly was a step too far. In other words, he alienated the population of that region so that in the occupied zones of Ukraine, the the hatred for Kiev is probably extreme. I mean, they don't like Moscow very much either. They don't think Russia's doing doing enough for them. But their anger towards Kiev is, is, is extreme. And this, I think, Zelensky could address right away. I mean, he could restore trade. He could make these people feel that they are part of Ukraine. Um, the promise of autonomy was given at the Minsk Accord in 2015. Um, it's never found its way through the previous parliament. Those kind of things, I think, could happen. But he w- he's going to have to negotiate with two other important actors. One are the leaders of these breakaway regions or so-called re- regions, um, because really the governments are not recognized by anybody, even Russia. Um, but they have a stake in this. And also uh, Moscow. I mean, he's obviously got to open up communication with with Putin and I think he's got to meet with Putin and most likely the other leaders of the Minsk Accords of 2015 which you know brought about an armistice in the war that is the 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 leaders of France and Germany Um, I think that's possible and I think much is up to the uh, you know to Merkel and to Macron to facilitate this and to take part in it and uh, if they do so then I think Putin would also take part in it. Oh, so why, I think that why do you think? Why? What is Putin's interest in ending the war? Why does he want to do it? Well, he. I mean, in 2014-15, it was a very gung ho Russian world type of action where he he anticipated that many parts of Ukraine would come over to Russia and would want to join this movement. Uh, but in fact, they didn't. In fact, the only reason you know regions that did so were were parts of Donetsk and Luhansk. And even they had no real inclination to join Russia. So after a few months, Putin sort of called a halt to it. He wanted no more massive um, campaigns. Um, the leadership changed. The leaders of, of the two republics today are very much controlled by Moscow, whereas earlier they weren't. But it's a mess. I mean, it's an economic mess. There are uh, over 5, 1.5 million refugees, over 13,000 people killed. The industry is in turmoil. Um, why, you know, what's in it for Russia to remain there? And I think for Russians, the best thing would be to simply get out of there, but make sure from their perspective that these regions have certain local power and they remain pro-Moscow. I'm talking with David Marples. He's the author of Ukraine in Conflict, an analytical chronicle, and we're talking about the recent parliamentary elections in Ukraine where President Zelensky's uh, Servant of the People Party won an outright majority. I wanted to say something about the opposition and Petro Poroshenko's party. 
Uh, they poured a lot of money into this election. They were this was going to be the comeback after uh, his thumping loss in the presidency. Uh, what? Why didn't uh, the Poroshenko party um, do as well as uh, they thought they could? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the same question also applies to the presidential election campaign. You know why? this dramatic collapse when, you know, last November it was kind of taken for granted that uh, Poroshenko would be would be uh, re-elected. I think the population is is tired of the of those kind of policies that were put forward by Poroshenko that is sort of very nationalistic, based on sort of ethnic interests. Um but also the tide of the old politicians. I mean these people have been around for the entire period of independence of Ukraine, I mean, Poroshenko was was the prime minister for uh, for Yushchenko. I mean, he served under Yanukovych, and you know, Yulia Tymoshenko goes back even further. You know, she goes right back to the nineteen nineties um, with um, when she was deputy minister for energy. And I think people are tired of this. They've got nowhere. The economy is in a terrible state. Ukraine has become the poorest country of Europe, according to the IMF. And that is the priority for most people. They're not interested in in the past or what the history was. They're more interested in their families, pensions, wages, um, and just, just a better standard of living. And the corruption is there at the back of everything. I think people are so tired of the corruption. They just want a complete break with previous politicians. And, and Zelensky seems to promise that. You know, it's a completely new team. One of the people who's associated with the opposition party for life is an oligarch named uh, Dimitrio Firtash. And the federal district court in Chicago has been trying to extradite him here for years now over a titanium deal with Boeing. And uh, what does that case reveal about uh, Ukrainian oligarchs and, and their interests? Yeah, he. I mean, Firtash has, has ties with a lot of the opposition. I mean – in fact, both the opposition blocks that ran in the parliament for life and the other opposition bloc, he had politicians in there with, with whom he's had close dealings. Uh, he made a fortune um, out of uh, reselling Russian gas to Ukraine, you know, with this company, uh, Ross Ukraine Energo. And he's, you know, definitely taken sides in this. I mean, he was very close to Yanukovych. He was hated by Timoshenko. And he's been a very divisive sort of figure. Um, you know, he's one of the he's one of the more notorious ones as well. And he's and his ties with some of the opposition leaders, I mean, including Renat Akhmetov, the you know who is the richest man in Ukraine at least until two thousand fourteen. I couldn't speak for now. Um, suggests that he you know he might hang around. I mean, unless the Austrians do deport him to to the United States, which seems to have been imminent for some time now, but it's not actually happened yet. So. You know, let's hope he keeps out of the way. But um, he's been a troublesome figure for the last two decades, really, um, an extremely controversial figure. If you're President Zelensky and you want to make uh, democratic reforms, is there any way that you can tinker with the system and make it better? A lot of people uh, complain about the uh, the party list regional combination of, of elections. Is there, are there is, does he have anything on his plate? Yes, he could. Um, well, he could do two things really. He could make amendments to the constitution, which many people have thought 
would be possible with this parliament that he could actually get through some changes to make the regional system more democratic. Um, and this was actually started by Poroshenko by, uh, incidentally, the decentralization campaign, which would have, in, in theory at least, made the regional systems more democratic, but it was never carried through. Or he could simply um, suggest Ukraine come up with a new constitution, a draft constitution that would have to go through three readings of parliament. But that's really like starting from scratch. That might be more difficult to do. I mean, Timoshenko was suggesting in her campaign that the best way for Ukraine to go forward would be to make the, the, the country a completely parliamentary republic and elect the president through the parliament, which is what Estonia has done with some success. I don't know whether that route will be taken. One thing I think he will do is um, abolish parliamentary immunity. I think that's almost certain so that MPs who are corrupt or carry out corrupt practices can be brought to justice. And I think that will be one of the first things that you will see in the new, you know, the new laws that are in issued by the parliament. So there are a number of things that can be done. I mean, much depends on who is going to be the new prosecutor general, who is going to be the prime minister, I would say, is probably the critical one as well. And that's not clear yet. It, it, and it seems like people have been kind of critical of the constellation of people who he has around him. They don't have – he doesn't have a deep bench, so to speak. They're, they're a new party. No, he definitely doesn't have a deep bench. But on the other hand, uh, that's the whole point, right, that these people were not there in the past. They've not held previous positions for the most part. Some of them have. Um, so it's much unpredictable. I mean you've got an Olympic gold medal wrestler in there. Um, you've got – many people to do with the cultural world who have not really got experience but he has said that he wants to appoint a seasoned economist as prime minister so that might tell you something David Marples is a university professor and chair of history in the classics department at the University of Alberta he's most author recently the author of Ukraine and Conflict an analytical chronicle thanks a lot for joining us and talking about President Zelensky's Servant of the People Party and their majority in Parliament and what it means for Ukraine thanks for joining us you're very welcome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll not hear Worldview. You will hear Robert Mueller and the Robert Mueller hearings in Congress. So uh, enjoy the Mueller hearings in Congress tomorrow on WBEZ. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland. Mike Gilmore engineered today's program. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ.